podcast. Hello and welcome to our weekly book club as the end of our journey through Shakespeare's complete works fast approaches. This week finally feels seasonal as we discuss The Winter's Tale. This play is surprising in many ways. It is both comic and tragic and it has a wide variety of characters, all of whom make different demands of us in the audience. This is a play that is famous for various bits and pieces that happen within it. It's notorious as an example of Shakespeare's exuberantly creative geography, since he manages to give landlocked Bohemia a coastline. And it has that famous stage direction I alluded to at the end of last week's episode. In this play, this is the one, a character exits pursued by a bear. There's a whole story before the bear makes its startling appearance, so we'll come back to that later. The first portion of the play happens in the court of King Leontes in Sicilia, something perhaps like Sicily. Despite what we might think when we think of Sicily, this is a rather cold court, and we are led to believe that these first scenes take place during winter. Leontes' dear friend Polixenes has been visiting, but the time has come for him to go home and attend to his own kingdom of Bohemia. Try as he might, Leontes can't quite cajole his beloved friend to stay any longer, but then his wife, Hermione, manages to convince Polixenes to stick around. This is all harmless enough, the kind of pleasant courtly chatter one might expect at the beginning of any such story. And then, quite literally out of nowhere, Leontes spontaneously combusts. A spark of jealousy flares up, white hot, and he invents an entire fantasy of jealousy in which Polixenes has been sleeping with Hermione and is the father of the child she is expecting. There's absolutely no reason to suspect Hermione, and yet Leontes launches into a paroxysm of jealousy that would make Othello look rational. In a startling scene, he switches his focus between chatting with his young, sickly son Mamilius, chatting with us in the audience, and staring in horror at what he supposes is his faithless wife. This first portion of the play feels like it moves as breathlessly as Leontes' jealousy, and soon Polixenes has been spirited away back to Bohemia, and Hermione is in prison for treason. Just as we might start to ask if there's nobody sensible and rational enough to stand up for her, a champion appears. She is Paulina, another heroine in this category of brilliant, intelligent and fascinating women that must surely have been quite difficult for Shakespeare's boy players to interpret. She has little truck with Leontes' ravings or the proceedings of his pestered senses and gives him a sequence of satisfying dressings down. In one of the most extraordinary examples of blank verse you'll ever hear, she insists on Hermione's virtue in a simple but very effective line. Good queen, my lord. Good queen, I say. Good queen. Now, she says an awful lot more than this, but I have frequently used this line and the corner of the play it comes from as an example of how to use the verse, and it's really quite perfect. Paulina is an older woman of uncertain rank in Leontes' court. 
She's like the moral centre of the play, with a position of respect and authority that is secure enough that she can rail against Leontes for his madness. Unfortunately, it's not enough, and he continues along this dark path. It's quite maddening to watch this leader fly against all sense, utterly convinced of a truth that he has fabricated in his own tortured head, founded on absolutely no evidence, and leading his family and his court to nothing but destruction. The case eventually comes to court, and Hermione has a beautiful speech in which she attempts to exonerate herself, again in full knowledge that her crazy husband might not believe her. Things go from bad to worse. She has the baby, a little girl, but when Leontes declares her guilty, Paulina brings the horrible news that she has dropped dead. Worse still, their son Mamilius also dies. The only hope for Hermione was that a petition had been sent to the Oracle of Apollo, suggesting that we are existing in a world that still puts faith in that holy of ancient holies. This has been another blot on Shakespeare's copybook. Apollo's oracle was at Delphi, which is in the mountains of the Greek mainland. Shakespeare has his Sicilians petitioned to the island of Delphos, but in his defence it is worth mentioning that the island of Delos, known as Delphos in English in the Renaissance, was the birthplace of Apollo. So maybe Shakespeare wasn't as wrong as folks like to insist. Word does come back from the oracle, and of course it exonerates Hermione, but it's too little, too late. Worse yet, the first thing that Leontes does is discredit the impartial proclamation, insisting that it's probably corrupt anyway. This provokes another diatribe from Paulina, and the harsh light slowly dawns on Leontes. He has lost his wife and his son. He still hasn't mended his ways, mind you. He insists that the bastard child, the daughter, is to be banished, exposed on a mountain or something like that. Antigonus, Paulina's husband, is tasked with the job, and he makes his way to that infamous sea coast. The child is wrapped up with some treasure to pay for any safe keeping that could be possible, and just at the point that Antigonus is trying to say farewell to her, almost again out of nowhere, the bear appears. It's so bonkers that it often gets a laugh, and why wouldn't something so unexpected and extraordinary? At the time of the first performances of this play, there were still bear-baiting pits along the South Bank in London, close to Shakespeare's theatre. Perhaps it happened that they managed to get a real bear to poke his head in and frighten poor Antigonus. Or, maybe more likely, they used a bear skin and some impressive choreography to present this shocking interruption of the story. Antigonus is a decent fellow. Nothing in the play suggests that he deserves this grisliest of endings. It's all very well for the stage directions to tell us, unusually, that he's pursued by a bear. Soon afterwards an eyewitness enters, and we are left in no doubt that the bear catches him and eats him. But, at the same moment, another man enters and finds the baby. These two, a shepherd and his son, a clown, a local ordinary man, decide to adopt the little baby girl. Heavy matters, heavy matters, says the shepherd. But look thee here, boy, now bless thyself. Thou meetest with things dying, I with things new-born. In this line, which I find really quite moving, 
the play seems to shift. Very often, the interval, in a modern performance, is put after this scene. After the insanity of the bear and the deaths of Hermione, Mamilius and poor Antigonus, we've had all the horror and tragedy that this play intends for us. We move from jealousy, destruction and things dying into a new frame of hope and youth and things newborn. The name Antigonus has echoes of the tragic heroine Antigone. The roots of the name mean something like against birth. So perhaps there's a kind of foreshadowing, even in the classically inspired name. The tragedy and the negation of birth have to die before things newborn can appear. And now they can. They are born, and things move rather quickly. Shakespeare fast-forwards a full 16 years, and to help us along, he presents us with time itself. As an absolute treat within his recent stage production, Kenneth Branagh had Judy Dench take a little break from her ferociously good performance as Paulina, and she appeared as a wistful, poetic vision of time as chorus. Time fills us in and tells us to look out for Florizel, son of Polixenes in this Bohemia, and explains that the girl, Perdita, she who has been lost, has grown up with this lovely shepherd and his son. Shakespeare squeezed almost all of the elements of a Greek tragedy into the first portion of this play. At its heart we have a king with a very serious tragic flaw, to use that antiquated term. Leontes' jealousy sets him on a totally destructive path, and even the Oracle of Apollo isn't enough to teach him how to see himself, to know himself, until it is too late and his whole family is destroyed. But, like his jealousy, that story has flashed hot and fast, and we still have two acts to go. Bohemia is presented as a total opposite to the frosty formality and suspicious, constricted court of Sicily. Hermione at one point mentioned that her father was the Emperor of Russia. This little detail quite often informs the design of the Sicilian half of the play. Leontes' court often looks like various periods in Russian history and design. The move to Bohemia is often a total break, with copious fresh sea air to reinvigorate proceedings. For the record, if you'd like to read more about the debates over how Bohemia could have had a sea coast, have a look at the Wikipedia page for this play. Here we are among shepherds and lovely country folk, all currently involved in preparations for a harvest festival. The whole community seems quite charming, and it's tempting once again to try to hear echoes of Shakespeare's own country life in the little squabbles between Dorcas and her boyfriend and the general hue and cry of the community. In the midst of all of this, Perdita seems to have blossomed like the proverbial flower in the mud. Surprise, surprise, she has met with and fallen in love with Florizel, who is also in disguise, hiding his high status because he wants Perdita to love him for who he is and not what he is. As if this weren't enough disguise, Polixenes, the king, is also hanging around this festival in disguise because he's concerned about his son frolicking among the peasants. You can see where all of this is going, of course. But, to keep us intrigued, Shakespeare also throws in the figure of a trickster called Autolycus. Here he gets his Greek mythology entirely right, the character himself knows that he's named after an infamous ancient mythological thief. 
He says he too is a snapper-up of unconsidered trifles. He sings a number of songs, he runs ringed around those less tricky than he is, and makes gleeful but not malevolent mischief. It's quite a star turn for an actor who can make the most of his comedy and his music, but I do have to confess that I've never entirely felt he earned his keep within the world of the play. There's a kind of slowness that hovers in these scenes in Bohemia. They all have their purpose, I suppose, but since we know that Perdita and Florizel both have to be revealed as anything but charming yokels, and are in fact rightful heirs to their respective thrones, I always feel like we're just getting through all of the shenanigans and merry knee-slapping songs and dances of this act. Surprise, surprise, father and son have their argument, and then Perdita is eventually revealed to be anything but that shepherd's daughter. And so, finally, with, I suppose, thanks to Autolycus in the background, we make our way back to Sicilia. Over the course of the sixteen years since the earlier acts, Leontes does seem to have calmed down considerably. He is chastened, and even more respectful of Paulina, who has happily survived the intervening years, and has still more speeches to give. Everybody makes it safely from Sicilia, and there are reconciliations and reunions, as Leontes speaks with Perdita, and Florizel, and even Polixenes. As if all of this isn't enough, and in any other play it might well have been, Paulina has another surprise. She invites the court to visit her room, where she would like to present a statue of Hermione by an Italian master. I think this is the only mention in Shakespeare of an artist's name. Giulio Romano was a real painter in the first half of the 16th century. Paulina presents this masterpiece very cautiously and carefully. Leontes is thunderstruck in an entirely new way, since it looks amazingly like Hermione, but Hermione as she might look now, almost two decades after he slandered her and lost her. He is so enchanted by the statue, he wants to touch it, but in a charming little moment, Paulina insists that he shouldn't, because the paint is still wet. Paulina has yet more surprises up her sleeve, and offers to make the statue move. Shakespeare gives her one of my favourite lines he ever wrote, a line about how everything is possible in the theatre, and about how the contract works between art and the imagination. It is required you do awake your faith. In this hushed, almost reverent moment, the statue does indeed move, and Hermione steps down from her pedestal. Unlike comparable moments, like the one in Much Ado About Nothing when Hero was squirrelled away, we have not been in on this plot. Shakespeare, I think, wants us all to believe that Hermione actually died. Again, like Hero, she died but while her slander lived, but Leontes had to repent for an awful lot longer. I feel this moment should be extraordinary. It's particularly difficult to stage, naturally, but when it's done well, it is wonderful. Who among us wouldn't wish for such a reunion with someone we have lost? A mother, a wife, a family member? There isn't much discussion of how Paulina hid Hermione away for all that time, because I suppose we don't really need it. We have yet another character newborn or reborn. If a production can get its audience to believe in it, to go along with the story it's telling, it's extremely beautiful. 
Now, it all rests on whether or not we can forgive Leontes for his savagery. It must be one of the biggest challenges Shakespeare ever wrote for an actor. Paulina has stage-managed this reunion, bringing the whole family back together. Perdita, she who was lost, Hermione, she who was dead, and Polixenes, who was all but banished. Perdita will marry Florizel, and the old friends, Polixenes and Leontes, reunited, will become a family thanks to their children's wedding. Everyone gets something like a happy ending, except for Paulina. Go together, you precious winners all, your exultation partake to every one. I, an old turtle, will wing me to some withered bough, and there my mate, that's never to be found again, lament till I am lost. She still misses poor Antigonus, but Leontes has a suggestion, and encourages her to marry good Camillo, another noble presence throughout the play. It is interesting that this is a play that ends with matches of multiple ages. It's not just about happy young couples with their lives ahead of them. We also have a middle-aged couple reunited in forgiveness, and indeed an older couple who might spend the autumn of their lives together. Having broken Leontes in half with the first segment of the story, Shakespeare does the unthinkable and shows us a man after the aftermath of his actions. Rather than ending the play in the wreckage of the tragedy, we are given three couples, presumably happy, walking off into the sunset. The play is sprawling and intense and quite unique, but that final scene is particularly powerful. There have been some very interesting theories about who might have inspired Paulina and where the idea of the statue might have come from. In maybe the most convincing portion of her book about the coded Catholic messages in Shakespeare's plays, Claire Asquith describes how Paulina could have been inspired by Magdalene Montague, a formidable Catholic woman who, like the character, hid honesty and honour in her home in the form of various outlawed relics and religious items. Not only that, she also had masses celebrated in her home, and so the mysterious final scene, with its sacred language and hushed atmosphere and the drawing of curtains, its music and its kneeling, its confirmations and confessions, has a distinct flavour of what was already the old religion. I'm not convinced by everything in Asquith's book, Shadow Play, but the fervour with which she describes Paulina's origin story, as it were, is a thrill to read. As for the statue, in his book about the mysteries of Shakespeare's lost play Cardenio, Greg Doran mentions another little detail that I've always found intriguing. At the same time as this play in 1611, King James had his own mother, Mary Queen of Scots, exhumed from her first resting place and reburied at Westminster Abbey. Her grave is marked with an extremely impressive statue that took years to carve. Here was, if you like, another wronged queen, several years dead, memorialised in the work of a master artist. In the flickering light of the Abbey's candles, who might not have felt they saw it move? At any rate, the play takes us on quite a journey. It is tragic, violent, comical, pastoral, musical and magical. Polonius would doubtless have loved it for straddling so many genres, and later commentators have bestowed on it the designation of being a romance. 
It continues to provoke and challenge directors, and recently it has been adapted as both an opera and a ballet. As part of the Hogarth Press series of novels inspired by Shakespeare's works, Jeanette Winterson wrote a beautiful book called The Gap in Time, which is very much worth a read if you're looking for something to devour on a winter's night. Next week, amazingly, we have the very last of the history plays, the slightly more obscure play of Henry VIII, also known as All is True. I hope you'll enjoy it, and I'll speak to you next time.